I'm Luke Story. For the past 22 years, I've been relentlessly committed to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of spirituality, health, psychology, and personal development. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. If you're into health, you know there's tons of companies that are slanging vitamins and supplements that supposedly give you energy to do things like, well, record a podcast or work out. Well, there's one company called Four Sigmatic that you've probably heard me talk about, and I'm going to talk about again right now, that make one of the most badass energy-producing products on the market, and it is made from cordyceps mushrooms. Yeah, weird. Now, it's made from mushrooms, but it doesn't taste like mushrooms. It gives you physical energy and endurance scientifically proven to do so. Cordyceps are adaptogens, but they're not like stimulants. In other words, they help you maintain energy levels without getting you super hyped, like a coffee product, for example. Now you can mix them with your coffee if you want to go full bore, like I do a lot of the time. But Four Sigmatic products are dope because they come in these little um, easy to use packets. They're also great for travel. I always have them like in my you know, my little medicine kit that I travel with. Um, I pop them out in the morning at hotels and just, you know, add water and shake them up or at home, use them in all my different elixirs and things like that. They're just really easy to use and they're really potent and they also taste good. You know, that's the thing with a lot of herbs and medicinal mushrooms, even the ones that work and are strong and legit, they're just kind of nasty and you have to be a real diehard to add them into your stack. And so what'll happen is oftentimes someone will say, cool, yeah, I want to use cordyceps. It really works. It's good for you. I feel awesome with it. But after like a week of that, it just tastes so nasty that you can't keep doing it. So that's what I love about Four Sigmatic. They've got the power packed products, but they also taste really good and they're super easy to use. You don't have to lug around a giant jar of mushroom extract, essentially. So here's how you can get your little grubby hands on some of this stuff. Go to foursigmatic.com forward slash Luke story. That again is foursigmatic.com forward slash Luke story. And if you use the code Luke story at checkout, you're going to save 15% off your order. My advice is in this particular promo, try the cordyceps. It's amazing. Welcome to the podcast, folks. We're going to get down and dirty today. This one's all about alcohol. You know, spirits, booze, hooch, swill, sauce, juice, vino, that liquid courage. You know what I'm talking about. This was a really fun episode for me due to a couple of facts. A, that I have extensive drinking experience earlier in life, and I mean very extensive. Uh, B, that I've not had a drink in over 22 years. So it's very surprising to myself as I do the intro here today that I haven't covered this topic in the past three years, but I suppose uh, perhaps I was just waiting for the perfect guest with which to do that. And I believe I found just such a guest. I'd like to welcome back Ruby Warrington for her second time appearance. She's the author of Material Girl, Mystical World. She's also the author of a new book called Sober Curious, which we're obviously going to talk about in this episode. She's also the founder of thenewmanist.com. Here's what we cover in this fascinating conversation. The fact that we're taught not to question our drinking until it becomes problematic. But why? Why are we willing to accept a hangover as the price for a good night out? A brief history of alcohol use amongst humans. Our brain's hardwired desire function and how to beat it. Why it's actually difficult to maintain a neutral relationship with alcohol in our current society. Why Ruby felt like an imposter when she tried to join AA. 
cultural conditioning around the acceptance of some drugs while demonizing others, alcohol's position as a rite of passage into adulthood, and the assumptions that come with it. Ruby's belief that anti-anxiety medication is essentially alcohol in a pill, unacknowledged spiritual and physical trauma and how that leads to alcohol abuse, how plant medicines can help us mend our trauma and change our relationship with addiction, and finally, why the hell is alcohol called spirits anyway? So as you can see, we really dive deep into the bottle on this one. It's actually a perfect segue into next week's episode called Kava Culture, Nature's Xanax and Your Nervous System Solution with Cameron George, which is kind of a almost a part two to this because we're saying, hey, maybe drinking might not be the best thing ever. Well, what are we going to do when we want to chill? Well, you can do Kava and you'll find out how to do that next week. Don't forget, you can always watch these interviews on YouTube. You can listen to them on Spotify. And in most cases, actually watch them being recorded live in all their gory detail, all the mistakes and all the behind the scenes on my Instagram. If you'd like to follow me, you can find me easily at Luke's Story. Okay, that's it. Let's sit back, sip something really healthy, and listen as our guest Ruby Warrington riffs on being sober curious. Lovely to see you again, Ruby. It's great to be back, Luke. Yeah, here we are. <laughs> so I'm super excited to have this conversation. Uh, as I would have said probably in the intro, those of you listening, Ruby's been on the show before and we talked about kind of how she got into the work that she does. And in that one, we went a little bit more into her origin story, mysticism, astrology, some of the things that are covered a lot on her site, The Numinous. Mm. I think that's what we called the episode, something like that, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, so it's kind of fun interviewing someone for the second time because we can kind of skip the backstory and just go into like what's happening today, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll, you know, in the intro, give the episode number if people want to go back. But anyway, it's nice to have you here in the new studio in Laurel Canyon in Los Angeles. It is beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, yeah it's cozy. The last one we did in, I think it was in my Airbnb in... It was an Airbnb in New York City. It was in Chelsea. I think it was actually, I think it was summer 2016. So I remember what top I was wearing. And that was the year (laughs) that that was the year that I wore that top. Like (laughs) that's funny. I mean, do you ever think about you have a background in fashion? Do you think about I I always remember things by what outfit I was wearing? That's so funny. I have no idea. Probably because I always wear the same 10 items okay. over and over again for years until they get holes in them. That's good. That's very environmentally friendly of you. Yeah, right? It is. Without I read somewhere, somewhere recently, like, you know, top tips for like being environmentally sound. One of them was wear every item of clothing at least 30 times. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I never thought about it from that point of view. Mm-hmm. The only time I really um, emphasize changing a lot is when I'm doing videos because I don't want to have a YouTube channel where I'm wearing the, the same stupid shirt. You it know, was Steve Jobs. Videos or I mean. Yeah, that's true. But I do kind of have my uniform. But what I remember about that conversation was that I was, I think I did like 12 interviews in 14 days or something like that. And I was super tired and I was way over caffeinated. And I remember when we recorded afterward, I was going, Luke, you talked way too much. And then I listened back to it and I was like, fuck, I did. I was like, I didn't, you didn't get to say anything. So this time I'm like, I'm not saying shit, Ruby. You're going to talk the whole time. Okay, you got it. Apart from this intro. So give me just up to speed right now. What what are you up to? What are you super excited about in, in real time in your life right now? Well, literally today, I'm going from here to lead a retreat at the 1440 Multiversity in Santa Cruz, which is going to be beautiful. And I'm really excited to do that. And it'll be, I'm looking forward to it as almost as a retreat for myself as well. My book, Sober Curious, came out December 31st. And so I literally began this year at like full speed ahead on the kind of promo 
trail for that book. I think I did crazy, like about 10 events in the first like two months of it being out. I led a sober curious retreat at Kripalu in February. And it's just really been go, go, go since then. And so I'm kind of looking forward to the next few days as much as I'll be teaching and leading this retreat as a bit of a retreat for myself, meaning a bit of a opportunity to disengage from the kind of constant barrage of emails and DMs and, you know, conversations and things that have been the backdrop to this year. But all of which, you know, to say... I'm so grateful for the way this book's been received. Like it really has seems to have struck a nerve and kind of hit the zeitgeist in a way. It's a conversation, this idea of being sober curious that really seems to be bubbling and so many people are um, getting really excited about it and wanting to hear about it. So it's been a really, really exciting start to the year. And what sure. are you going to be doing specifically at your retreat? Is it going to be focused around this idea of... Of, sub- of having of like an sober curious life? Well, no, I did a specific sober curious retreat at Kripalu, Got which it. was um, three days and two nights. And I had about 30 people come and we did lots of different kind of investigation around our relationships to alcohol, our perceptions of alcohol, why it is we drink. Um, and people had come from all different walks of life. It was a really diverse demographic of people, some who had been in AA and recovery and were looking for different ways to kind of like reframe their experiences others who had never even spoken aloud before that they had any kind of like an issue with alcohol and were very tentatively investigating what it might look like to to change their relationship to alcohol that was really fantastic the retreat that's coming up it's actually called manifesting the matriarchy and it's with alexandra roxo who is my collaborator on moon club which is something i used to run i actually stepped out of that at the beginning of this year because I'm just, I'm doing too many things. And I realized that I've been spreading myself too thin, actually, to really be of service to the multiple projects. So yeah, I thought yeah. the backdrop to Sober Curious really taking off has been a kind of a, a pairing back a little, the other things I'm committed to, so that I can be fully available. Did for anyone this. sneak alcohol into your Sober Curious event? <laughs> they did not. I haven't had, we had one event at Soho House in Miami where they served wine. And I'm I'm fine with that because the yeah. thing about sober curious, it's not necessarily saying alcohol is evil or you have to stop drinking. It's really about inviting anybody into a conversation where they get to investigate something which so often just goes under the radar. It flies under the radar. We don't we're not taught to question our drinking until it becomes problematic, you know? Absolutely. And that to me just the more I look at that, I'm like, how how is that? Alcohol is something, it's a substance that's so widely available. It's one of the five most addictive substances on the planet. <laughs> and it has, it does have huge negative consequences for most people actually who drink. Like most people who drink will have experienced a, a terrible hangover at some point in their life. And even if that's as far as the negative side appears to go, even that is something I think to examine, you know, why, do, why are we so willing to accept a hangover as the price for like a quote unquote good night out or a quote or a few hours of relaxation or whatever it is we were looking for in the alcohol, you know? So we had one event where they served wine and I was, I'm completely fine with it because like I said, I'm not about like, everybody has to stop drinking. It's really about creating an environment and a culture around drinking where anybody feels like it's safe and it's okay to ask whatever questions they need to, to come to their own relationship with alcohol that feels healthy for them you know I like to really that, yeah. learn to really know that in whatever situation each individual can trust themselves to make the right choice for them with drinking 
for me, it means I've got to a point where there's there's honestly like never a situation where alcohol feels like it's going to be the appropriate substance for me. Not because I banned myself point blank from drinking, but because I've got to a point where I've just, I'm so aware of what this substance is and what it actually does to me and the wider kind of ramifications that I just have no desire or need for it in my life anymore. <laughs> Did you ever get to a point where you thought you might be an alcoholic or be addicted to alcohol? Absolutely. And I think I was a a little bit addicted. I have this theory that I talk about in my book because of the nature... The second chapter is actually called The Nature of the Beast. And it really lays out the facts, which like I said, is that alcohol is super, super addictive. Like it's in the list with heroin, cocaine, speed and nicotine. Like alcohol is... Really? That's so funny. Alcohol is the other one that's up there, (laughs) I didn't even know that. And I was addicted to alcohol. For right, a long time. Right. But I just thought, you know, it's just this rare gene that some of us have where, you know, you hit a certain tipping point and then well, this is you very can't much, control it in your life. This is very but much I the never, messaging. I never thought that much about alcohol itself becoming addicted because I just think like either a person's born with that tendency or mm, not. And those, mm. that, those that aren't born with that are just free to drink as much as they want and they'll never become an alcoholic because... I didn't think of it as addicted. I thought it was more about the person, not about the actual substance. So exactly. And this is very much the the mainstream messaging around problem drinking or alcoholism or addiction, even when it comes to... So I've really laid out like, you know, alcohol is super addictive. We're also biologically hardwired to become addicted to alcohol. Our our brains operate on something called the desire function, which means that we are literally hardwired to seek out and repeat any experience that either brings us pleasure or numbs or takes away our pain. Alcohol on a very superficial level appears to do both those things for us, right? So our brain is literally like, oh great, I found this thing that stops me hurting and makes me happy. Oh, and it's super addictive. Oh, and then the third layer on that is that it's heavily, heavily marketed at us from like literally the age that we're old enough to understand. So I kind of lay out in that chapter, my theory that it's actually kind of harder not to become addicted to alcohol than it is to have a perfectly kind of like neutral, take it or leave it attitude. I do completely acknowledge that, and as do, you know, many medical experts now, there are shades of gray and there's a spectrum when it comes to addiction. And perhaps that's genetic. I My theory is kind of, just the more that I've looked into it, and I'm not a doctor and I'm not, you know, an expert on trauma, for example. However, a psychiatrist friend of mine, Will Sue, he believes that any addiction is ultimately a symptom of an unhealed or an unaddressed trauma. That's that we've, you know, something something we've experienced in our lives. And trauma that is a is a scary word, but it can be applied to so many different things. And all humans have experienced some level of trauma. And so he sees addictive tendencies and addictions that get kind of out of control and come to rule people's lives as literally being an attempt, the body's attempt to to numb the pain of that trauma that's just sitting there not being addressed. And I do wonder if people who have, I I haven't seen a study that shows a link between, a correlation between um, a kind of level of trauma, if you could even give trauma kind of like a rating, I suppose, and a, a more kind of like a propensity towards addictive behaviors, but it wouldn't surprise me at all. For example, I did learn that 80% of female alcoholics have experienced sexual abuse or sexual assault. Wow. 
So when you start looking at it that way, you can say, was I born with this genetic? Perhaps your trauma was something, perhaps it was, you know, your mother's unhealed trauma that you have inherited in this life and that you're kind of like playing out for her. I think many of us are on board with the fact that we do inherit kind of, you know, subconscious patterning from our parents. So perhaps your trauma is something you weren't even aware of. And yet still is a part of you that's seeking a way to 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 heal that or to numb out from that. And that's where these addictions can kind of really take hold. So ultimately, you know, the the psychological perspective, I suppose, is if you can heal, the, if you can find the, the traumatic event, whatever it was, and seek to address that. And I think, you know, plant medicines are well known for really helping with addictions because they can help people very quickly identify, this is what happened to me. This is why it hurt. And this is how I can let yeah. it go or how I can move on from it, you know, in a, in a quite a mystical way. Yeah. And so, yeah. so yeah, it's interesting to think about going back to, you know, I have this, this theory that anybody who drinks on a regular basis is a little bit addicted to alcohol. So in my case, I definitely had developed an emotional attachment to alcohol. There were certain situations where it was, I couldn't even contemplate not drinking like a wedding, for example, or, I mean, it began with, it began with smaller things like dinner in a restaurant, not having wine just like does not compute <laughs> you know yeah, up to like yeah. a wedding or a birthday party or a vacation like no cocktails on vacation huh what and it was only when I removed the alcohol that I realized how strong my cravings were and how obsessed I became about wanting a drink in situations where I was expecting to have a drink so that's when I got to thinking am I an alcoholic then am I in denial because I have these very strong cravings for alcohol and eventually I mean I've been questioning my drinking for about eight years now, eight, nine years. And about five years in, I was really not for drinking very much at all. But I did go to a few AA meetings because the, the overall dominant messaging was like, if you're questioning your drinking at all, if there's ever a situation where you find it hard to say no to a drink, you're an alcoholic and you need to be an AA and you must abstain from alcohol. So I kind of was like, okay, I'm obviously in denial. I need to just like do this. But found myself in meetings with people sharing stories that did not reflect my story. And I really felt like an imposter, you know, here were people who had really been brought to their knees by this substance and by their addiction. And there was me kind of like, oh, it's hard for me not to have that glass of wine sometimes. It was like, there's, <laughs> there's, there's, there's like, right, I I get felt, it. it felt almost disrespectful to, to what was happening, to the deep pain and healing that was happening in those in those rooms, you know, I didn't feel like I had any right to be there really. And so I was confused because I still wanted to be able to openly talk about this conflicted relationship I had with booze and understand why it was so difficult for me not to drink in certain situations. So that's when I started writing and talking more about this idea of being sober curious. And I started an event series in New York called Club Soda NYC, which was really designed to kind of remove some of the stigma from this this conversation because it's not something that's spoken about widely, you know, even though alcohol is something that touches all of our lives. It's absolutely the norm to drink in our culture. And yet none of us are ever encouraged to question how we drink, why we drink, why it, it's so prevalent, why it's why there's so much pressure to drink sometimes. There's a lot, there's a lot in there. I'm going uh -huh. sort of, to reverse, <laughs> there's so many things and I, I want to reverse engineer that a little bit. Mm starting with the end and that is culturally you know as as you're speaking and I'm listening to your accent I'm thinking back to a lot of time that I spent in the UK years yeah. ago I think I did like five pretty long trips there okay playing music and stuff and I always found it fascinating 
And this is at a time when I had already quit drinking years before because I was one of those people that had a serious, right. you know, life-threatening problem with it. Not yeah. just like, huh, I don't know, maybe this is an issue. It's like, no, it's very obviously right. an issue. So anyway, I'm in the UK and what I thought was so weird, and this would be, you know, in England, Scotland, Ireland, all over them islands over there. And um, it'd be like <laughs> four in the afternoon, you walk down the street and all the pubs are full and people are drinking. Mm. The interesting thing to me though, is that, other than really late at night, which, you know, a lot of the pubs for people that don't know close really early, which was very strange to me. It's like 10 p.m. and mm. the bars are shutting down. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what is wrong with you people? That's why everyone starts early. Is that the deal? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. You, have to, you know, it's going to be last orders <laughs> at like 10, 30, 11. So right. you have to start at four so you can get enough drinks in before it closes. Okay. So <laughs> there, that, you just solved part of the mystery for me. But what was interesting is I didn't really see anyone pissed drunk. Other than, like, I think I was in, uh, what was I, uh, Glasgow. Right. And they, it seemed like some of the bars either let out later or there were nightclubs or something that mm. were on a different sort of time mm. schedule. And I remember mm. one night I went out to get some curry and, like, the streets were just full of just wasted people. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> guys that you wouldn't, you know, you, I was, like, finding myself a little nervous, actually, because mm. people were so hammered mm. and the guys were pretty rowdy, you know? Yeah, it can get Footballer violent. Kind of yeah, energy, there's right? a big cult drinking culture around the kind of, like, football rivalry and, yeah. Yes. So, I don't know if it was game night or what the hell was going on, but oh, I was, like... just Friday night. It's <laughs> like, oh, shit, these people are wasted. But other than that, I mean, most of the time, it just it seems like a very casual thing and it's just embedded into the culture, whereas... In the States, I mean, if you're like, hey, everyone, let's go to the bar and like get hammered at 4 p.m. I mean, even like a normal person is kind of like, dude, it's too early to be drinking. Mm. You don't drink in the daytime, right? Mm. So mm. I, I, I'd like to talk Unless about... Unless it's brunch. Can we just talk about bottom, bottomless <laughs> okay. brunch? We don't have bottomless brunch in the UK. Oh, that's <laughs> Not funny. to like right, compare right. and contrast, but I think yeah. that, yeah, there are definitely differences in our drinking cultures. I think what I've noticed, people drink a lot more spirits here. So it's a lot kind of harder and faster, the drinking. And it does go on later. Like bars in New York open until 4 a.m. And people are there until 4 a.m. You know, it's like, yeah, it's, diff it's different. And I also yeah. wonder if, because in, um, the U.S. is so much more of a driving culture. I wonder if more drinking happens at home, actually kind of behind closed doors. And we don't necessarily see so much of the kind of really alcoholic drinking because it's actually happening in people's homes. Interesting observation. Mm. Right. I where, wonder. I mean, I don't know. But. Right, right. So other than just cultural norms, have you seen any indications that there's genetic predispositions to drinking too much or people... I've heard it said, and I don't at all know that this is true, but like Asian people don't take alcohol very well and they can't drink very much. They turn red and have sort of this allergic reaction. And mm. again, I'm making a huge generalization mm. here and I don't know that that's a fact, but it is sort of like a a cultural meme, I guess you could say. Like, mm. oh yeah, Asians can't take their alcohol and stuff like that. Whereas if someone has Irish blood or something, oh, I can drink like an Irishman and you know, nothing will put me down. And there's sort of like this also pride with certain cultures about how much they can drink. Yeah. Have, you, have you researched at all the just genetically if certain people are more predisposed or can kind of handle the drinking better than others? It's interesting. I've heard that thing about Asian people as well. And it's, it's something I have noticed kind of like just generally in passing, I suppose. Um, but I honestly think it's more about cultural conditioning. You know, I'm, I think I have like Nordic, you know, in the, in the UK, there's kind of like Celtic Nordic blood. And there's, I just think of Vikings with like huge 
tap like tankards of ale and (laughs) mead, like the pagans making mead and stuff. I just think that drinking has always been part of the kind of like Celtic, pagan, sort of Western European lineage, you know? But yeah, and I, I, yeah, like I said, I do think it's more about cultural conditioning than than necessarily genetic disposition and the way that we learn about what it means to be a drinker. A big part of my mission with this whole book and the whole kind of conversation I'm starting around this, like just really opening up this subject for discussion is to make it as normal not to drink as it is to drink. Yeah. Because if you think about it, and I'm, I, you know, I'd, I'd be curious to hear your backstory with alcohol as well. And most of, you know, the legal drinking age is 21, but I would say in this country and 18 in the UK, I would say that most people probably have their first exposure to alcohol in their early teens, if not even earlier. I actually interviewed Moby for my podcast recently. Have you read his books? No, I haven't. Oh, really fantastic. Um, the second one is a kind of a rock bottom memoir. It just came out this week, actually. Uh, it's called Then It Fell Apart. Anyhow, check that out. It's a really good book. But you know, he started drinking aged around 12. And I've spoken to other people who've had more serious problems with alcohol. And 12 seems to be a kind of like... I do sort of think the earlier that you find alcohol as a way to soothe whatever pain, existential pain you're experiencing, the more likely you are to have problems later in life. You know, obviously those drinking ages have been put in place for a reason. And I wonder actually, when our brains are still forming in our adolescence and early teens, it's very much easier for those neural pathways that associate feeling good um, or a sense of relief or escape with alcohol to be formed much and, and grooved kind of like worn much more deeply into the grooves of, of the brain um, and therefore harder to undo, you know? Absolutely. So I think that, yeah, I mean, we have these drink legal drinking ages in place, but I, I know very few people who actually waited until they were 18 or 21 right? to have a drink, like, right? It's like sex. I mean, I guess there's no legal kind of like, there, but, but it's kind of like as soon as possible. <laughs> yeah. It's always seen as a badge of honor, yeah. like to, to do these adults, these to experience these kind of transitions into adulthood. And alcohol very much in our culture is, I think, seen as a sort of a rite of passage into adulthood, you know? Um, yeah. The idea of going out drinking with your parents when you're 21 is kind of like welcome to the welcome to the world of adulthood, you know. Yeah. And the assumption behind that is really that as a grown up, as an adult human being, you're going to be a drinker. Imagine if there was. Imagine if we had were given both options from early on in our lives. I think um, possibly fewer people um, who go on to have serious alcohol problems would even begin drinking in the first place. That was saying I just find other ways to, you know, soothe whatever in whatever's whatever's hurting. It's interesting. There's tons of studies coming out about how millennials and Generation Zs are drinking a lot less, like seriously declining oh, drinking so? among younger age groups. And at first I was kind of thinking... Is that because weed is Well, so, this is the is thing, so right? At first I was like, oh, they have social media. So they don't have to... The intimidation of going into bars, like they're not... They're socializing in different ways. Right, they're socializing by staring They're socializing like this. There's, <laughs> right. there's a different kind of social anxiety. Right. There's anxiety that comes with that. How many likes that. did I get? Exactly. <laughs> but there's like, not the kind of anxiety about like, how do I look or who's looking at me or what am right, I right, saying, right. you know? Um, but actually, yeah, I just wonder if um, it's because weed is starting to be legalized more places. If prescription drugs are becoming more available to people at younger ages, I think a lot of kids are on Adderall and things like that. So right. I don't necessarily think that the that younger generation is drinking less is any indication that we're, again, getting down to, we're actually doing anything to address the root cause of it. I heard... Again, my psych- the same psychiatrist friend told me that um, 
anti-anxiety medication is essentially alcohol in a pill in terms of what it does to the brain. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah. So I think that the fact people are being prescribed more medication is ultimately just a... It, it, we, we, we've, we've all heard the term self-medicating in terms of like using alcohol that way. And so, yeah, maybe people are just getting medicated in other ways now instead. Well, this goes back to what you were saying about um, addictive behaviors being a response to trauma. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this is... I don't need a scientist <laughs> or any studies to tell me that that's the case, at least subjectively. I mean, that was absolutely my experience. Mm. Um, and there wasn't the prevalence of psychiatric medications being, or just pharmaceuticals in general is being prescribed. So when I was a kid and there was trauma, I mean, A, the adults didn't know and they were on their own kind of trip anyway and mm. probably weren't in a place where they could have been supportive, mm-hmm. um, even if they had known. But I had to kind of like suss out myself how to deal with pain and there wasn't, oh, we need to take Luke to the psychiatrist and then they're going to give me Adderall or Xanax or whatever. It was just like, you're in trouble all the time at school and then there's discipline maybe for your acting out, but not really addressing the root cause. And Mm so um, I see as someone who was in a lot of pain, found my own means by which to to treat that pain, which was quite effective, to be honest. I mean, that's why it's very effective. As someone who, you know, <laughs> I I don't do drugs and alcohol and stuff, but I don't have anything against it because it it serves its purpose for certain people, especially if there's no other alternative. Mm. So in my case, there was mm. there just was no alternative. Mm-hmm. So smoking weed was amazing. I mean, I, that's the only way I think I didn't kill myself when I was a kid. Honestly, I'm not even being dramatic mm. at all. Mm. I was suicidal for years, but then, you know, I had that to go to her. Then I would find alcohol, which was kind of not my preferred medicine, but it still did the trick. Mm -hmm. And then getting into recovery later in life, seeing that when you remove the medicine, the illness is still there, you know, and I think that's the thing a lot of people don't realize that have gone really far into active addiction or alcoholism is it seems like that's what the problem is. And this is what's so sort of... um, confusing about the process of of being a sober person is that Mm. your whole, like my whole adolescence and young adulthood was like, dude, you're an alcoholic, you're an addict. This is what's wrong with you. And all of the problems with the authorities and all the stuff that comes along with that is a result of your behavior because you're drunk or you're high all the time. And the people that you're associating with are of, you know, um, lower consciousness, right? And there's consequences. So then you think, cool, so I just need to get rid of this outward behavior, stop drinking, stop using, and then I'll be a great person and I won't have any problems. And then actually what happens is the the opposite of that for someone like me. As you get sober and you're like, oh shit, Uh I have all this trauma to deal with, all these negative ways of thinking and experiencing reality. And really what is at the core of that is a lack of spiritual connection and meaning and and human connection and love and all of those things that were perhaps not present earlier on. Exactly. I'm I'm really hopeful about the the concept that you're bringing to the table that like when it does reach the point of an acute addiction, the first thing you need to go look at is the trauma mm-hmm. and the plant medicines mm-hmm. and all the different all the different means by which one can heal that trauma mm-hmm. um, through spiritual practices, etc. It's like once you deal with the trauma, then the need to go self-medicate is removed. It's not even about removing the medication. It's about removing the need for the medication. Exactly. Treating the act, going to the root cause of whatever it is that's hurting, you know. And I also, you know, I was was nervous. There may be some criticism of Sober Curious in kind of, um, in that it may think, 
encourage people who have a more serious drinking problem to think, oh, it's okay if I, I can be sober curious, I can still drink here and there. For some people, that's most definitely not an option, right? However, I actually think this is going to help. There's a term early exeter. Have you heard that? No. So they say that alcoholism is a progressive disease, right? Sure. And so I, like I said, I've acknowledged I was a little bit addicted to alcohol. It wasn't causing me kind of like life or death issues. However, I do wonder, had I continued drinking in the way that I was without addressing it, had some kind of a life trauma happened to me? Had I got a divorce? Had one of my parents died? Had like, I had a, a serious accident or an illness or lost all my work or something? Would I have then, would that have, would that drinking, that already kind of ingrained kind of habitual drinking, heavy habitual drinking, have turned into something more serious? And so I think, yeah, the term early exeter refers to somebody who kind of like arrests the progression. Someone who pulls the parachute early. (laughs) Someone who pulls the parachute early. And they actually, there's a theory that it's actually harder for an early exeter to stop because there is no rock bottom. There's no like life or death. You have to stop now. So that That kind of like middle ground, that procrastination around it, which can ultimately be super draining and very um, debilitating anyway, if you're spending a lot of time obsessing over whether or not you're drinking too much, can actually be distracting massively, you know, from caretaking in your family or from you doing your job properly or just kind of like your overall well-being. That can stretch out over years. You know, so I'm really hoping that this can actually help people before it gets to a really serious full stop. That's amazing. To actually kind of like withdraw in more subtle and like positive circumstances. That's that's really powerful because, um, again, you know, I can only base my own commentary on my subjective experience. For me, because things had gotten so bad, there was no option of curtailing it or just, you know, oh, just on the weekends. I mean, I tried all that kind of stuff, right? And so in order for me to um, find the help that I needed, there had to be this deep, deep surrender experience, this sort of almost like a religious conversion Mm. experience where Mm. I was just like, oh my God, I, I have to stop this and realizing the point that you don't in and of yourself have the power to do that. And then the the magic there is in that surrender experience of really seeking God earnestly with the utmost core humility, like the, the absolute, absolute, you're just beating your lick. There's not, there's no shred of your ego that's like, no, man, I got this. You know, it's like, I'll just go to the gym more. Yeah. All of your, <laughs> every little out and every trick that you've played to go into denial and, you know, you've evaded the legal system, whatever the case may be. I tricked all your friends, you know, all the games that people play when they psychologically realize they have a problem now, they have to hide it or try to fix it themselves. Mm. But everyone I've known in my life and most of the people I know are people that have a similar background as myself because you just birds of a feather Mm -hmm. flock together and we all just, I don't know, we kind of have a certain peculiar mental twist that helps us relate to one another and support Mm. each other. But I know very few people that were like, yeah, I don't know. I was like every other weekend getting a little too drunk. So I went to AA and like surrendered my life to God. I mean, that just, it's, it doesn't happen very often. And right. I have observed that it is much harder for people that haven't really hit that rock, rock bottom because it's much more difficult to surrender and seek an earnest spiritual way of life, which to me has been the solution. Yeah, right. Is really having some relationship with a higher power in my mm-hmm. life that becomes more than just, oh yeah, every here and there in a yoga class, I think I feel something, but actually relating to everyday life moment to moment from the spiritual perspective. Mm. 
and having that surrender happen is very difficult if you haven't had your ass kicked. Exactly. So I think because that's, the ego that's is really... still kind of like, <clears throat> it's okay, I got this. Yeah. I got this. And that can go on for years, like yeah. I said. And it's interesting. I've spoken before about how I, like people go to AA and find spirituality when they get sober. I found spirituality through launching my platform, The Numinous, and writing my first book, Material Girl, Mystical World. And that's what led me to sobriety because it was still making that connection to a higher power, to really having faith that I was supported and that there was, you know, a higher, a higher purpose to my life, I suppose, and a deeper meaning to my existence that actually really shone a light on how I was using alcohol and how alcohol was actually separating me from that on a daily, weekly basis. And that actually I'd been seeking that kind of a connection to something that felt like magic or, or transcendence or something greater than me in getting drunk. It's yeah. a really, there's a whole chapter on spirits yeah, I mean, and spirituality. I, I lo- and I love that chapter. It's toward the end. Can you talk a little bit? Of, you know, I guess we're just kind of going at this from all different angles but <laughs> yeah. in, a, in a non-linear way, which is fine. I often have conversations like this that don't make any <laughs> sense in the terms of the chron- chronological order of, of uh, topics. But I do find this fascinating um, that you, you touched on that because... You know, give us some stuff on the word spirits and mm. like what what is the spiritual well I've you know get, uh, the spiritual um, yearning that people have that they're trying to fill with alcohol and give us some context on that. It's well, really I mean, it's really fascinating, and it is it's something that exists for me in the numinous. That word numinous means the unknown or the unknowable. It's the kind of like the great mystery of life, and I think that alcohol as a substance lives there for me. Actually, the na- I've always found it fascinating that it's called spirits. And the official kind of reason is that when um, the process of distillation was first invented, meaning, you know, alcohol was extracted from whatever was being distilled, what was distilled was thought to be the spirit or the essence of that substance. So in a way, you know, we can think of our spirit as our essence, like an undefinable sort of life force that exists within us that's connected to, connects us to all other beings and to all other life on earth, right? That's kind of how I think about my spirit. So there's something in every plant that is also its spirit. And alcohol is that essence. Whoa, alcohol is a plant medicine. Alcohol is a spirit. I mean, some some kind of like indigenous religions will believe that, or traditions will believe that alcohol is is a spirit, is a demonic spirit. Because alcohol is a spirit that wants to embody like humans so that this spirit can have a human experience and satisfy its kind of like earthy carnal desires. Wow. So fat. You should speak to Shaman Derek about this. He has a lot to say. That's on one this of the subject. things I haven't talked to Derek about, actually. <laughs> he's very anti alcohol and he's one of the shamans who doesn't use any plant medicines because he believes we could, we really do have everything we need to heal ourselves within ourselves. But yeah, there are there are theories around alcohol actually being a spirit. I don't. I mean, a demonic spirit. I don't know. I personally, I I, I try to cultivate a neutral mind around this. Right. I don't necessarily like using the words good or bad or right or wrong. I don't think there's anything good, bad, right or wrong about drinking about sobriety. It's really all about like integrity and finding what your truth is. And I just yeah, for I think like I said, for myself, when I'm, when I'm really in integrity, there's no need for alcohol and it, it inevitably leads to negative consequences. Even if my negative consequences aren't 
like lying in a gutter covered in vomit, like right. after 15 yeah. shots of vodka, you yeah. know? Well, you know, it's um, just how you, you were describing trauma as a subjective experience where maybe one kid's trauma is they were the golden child and they had all these unrealistic expectations put on them, right? Yes, that can be a trauma. Athletically, in mm-hmm. terms of, um, you know, uh, grades, et cetera, mm-hmm. right? And then you have one kid that was ignored and neglected and then you have one kid that was savagely beaten or molested or something mm-hmm. like that. And all of those things are on the spectrum of trauma. And also the spectrum of your relationship to addictive behaviors is also relative to, and you Mm -hmm. experience your own kind of pain and Mm -hmm. kind of self-trauma is the way I really look at it, Mm -hmm. right? When you're abusing yourself because you were traumatized, then you're also, there's a compounding trauma that is self-inflicted. Absolutely. It's almost like, I think think the psychological term for it is tolerance. Right. We... Even we have when we have painful experiences, we develop a tolerance to them, but that becomes our default way of operating. So we'll almost kind of look for other similar painful experiences because that's our that's what we're used to. It's almost what's most comfortable for us, even if it's painful. It's kind of yeah, it's an interesting thought, and I've I've often often wondered as well if the the pain that comes with heavy alcoholic drinking is actually an easier pain to manage than the emotional pain of your unaddressed trauma. You have an answer. Like, I feel like this because I did this to my body. I feel like this because I put this stuff in my body. It's kind of black and white. Whereas I feel like this because there's a, you know, I was abused when I was two and a half and I don't actually kind of remember what happened. Mm -hmm. Like that's, it's a much harder, much more um, challenging kind of puzzle to unravel. And, but it is when we put those puzzle pieces together that we can experience healing and that we can actually then understand what happened and move on in whatever kind of a way that we can. There's another amazing book called um, The Biology of Desire by a guy called Mark Lewis, who's an opioids addict turned brain scientist. And he really talks about, you know, the idea of sort of healing narrative medicine, like the idea of being able to put uh, put all of the pieces of our story together in a way that makes narrative sense to us as a really important part of healing from addictions. Just understanding whatever it was that led us to this point of of abusing ourselves in that way and being able to make sense of it as a way of sort of making yeah. peace with it. We'll be right back at you after this brief but important announcement. Oh man, I am buzzing to tell you about Beekeepers Naturals, you guys. Now I've been into bee products for a really long time. And after I recorded and published episode 175 with Carly Stein, I got even more obsessed with bee products. Now, a lot of people think bees just make honey. Oh, that's nice. It tastes sweet and it comes in that little bear thing. No, dude, bees make a whole suite of really potent superfoods. They're actually medicines in many countries. They're considered medicine and I consider them that too. So you've got your propolis, you've got bee pollen, and of course the honey and the royal jelly. Now, Beekeepers Naturals, which to me is the number one most premier bee product company in the world, also make a product called Bee Powered, which combines all of those superfoods from the hive into one product, which is just absolutely insane. There's something you need to be aware of, though, when it comes to bee products, is that even if you get, say, like a great honey that tastes delicious and it's labeled organic, it still could be tainted by pesticides like Roundup. It's called glyphosate. It's like one of the most gnarly pesticides in the world. Monsanto, you are evil. Shame on you. Why are you putting this stuff all over the planet? Anyway, I digress. 
Here's the deal though. You can label a bee product organic, but that doesn't mean that your bees from your hive aren't going down the road and like picking up a bunch of glyphosate and bringing it back into your hives. So you want to only use bee products from a company you can trust and Beekeepers Naturals is one such company because not only is their whole process organic and really kind to the environment and to the bees, which is really important, but they test for all contaminants and poisons and pesticides using a third-party verified lab. So you know that you're getting a pure, safe, and very effective product from beekeepersnaturals.com. So go to beekeepersnaturals.com, use the code LIFESTYLIST and save 15% off your order. Years ago, I started to do a lot of studying about health and I began to realize how important sleep and specifically good REM and deep sleep is for us and our recovery and our general health and well-being. Now, this is something that my dearly departed grandmother used to tell me all the time growing up. And I always thought, thanks, Granny, but I'm rock and roll. I don't need sleep. Well, as I've gotten older, I realized I really cherish my sleep. And the more I get, the better I feel. However, there's something that ruins your sleep, which I discovered a couple years ago, and it's called blue light. And that basically means any light that you see after dark that's not red or amber, which means, you know, 99% of the light you're going to encounter uh, if you're a modern human living in society. So I started using these uh, blue blockers off Amazon. They look like construction goggles and uh, my friends and, 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 and people that I dated were highly disappointed and I think even disgusted at times by the ugliness of these glasses. And so I'm proud to announce now that we've got a company called blueblocks.com that makes some not only attractive but very effective blue blocking glasses that block the various harmful spectrums of light in the blue and green range that really hurt your melatonin production as well as your hormones and neurotransmitters. So you can go to blueblocks.com, that's B-L-U-B-L-O-X, and use the code LIFESTYLIST to save 15% off some very cool looking and very effective eyeglasses that are going to protect you from blue light at night. Blueblocks.com. And now back to the interview. On the spirits, I'm still like, yeah. I'm still obsessed with this <laughs> it's, idea. It's very of, interesting. Of the, of the spirits and the, I think the Latin root of, of spirits in terms of alcohol is espiritu or something to that effect. Mm. There's, an, there's an interesting factoid historically in relation to this observation. And that is um, years and years into um, the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, Bill Wilson's life. So maybe, I don't know, he's 20 plus years sober and he's kind of stepped out of the leadership role of that organization, mm. et cetera. And he um, started writing uh, letters to Carl Jung and they had some correspondence. And Carl Jung had been very unsuccessful at treating an alcoholic that came to see him. And that alcoholic eventually came back to the United States. He was going, to, I think, to Switzerland or wherever and seeking treatment. He's this wealthy guy named Roland Hazard. And he would go to Carl Jung, get treated a couple of times and it didn't work. And finally, mm -hmm. Carl Jung was like, dude, I don't know what to help you. I can't, all my skills are insufficient in helping you overcome this issue you have with alcohol. He said, however, I have seen in some rare cases that people with your problem and people that have a mind like you have, which is really at the core of, you know, addictive behavior is mm. a mind that just tortures you and mm. you have to shut that mind off. Mm -hmm. He said, I have seen people go and have spiritual or religious experiences and be um, relieved of this obsession. And so the guy comes back to America and joins this thing called the Oxford Groups, which is sort of a non-denominational Christian group, sort of a precursor to 12-step mm. programs where there was, you know, group testimony and group support. And they had this 
system of steps, similar. I think there were six of them or something like that. Anyway, the guy comes back and he gets sober by becoming spiritual. Mm. And then he meets another guy and then the other guy goes and he's a friend of Bill Wilson's. And basically the story is Bill Wilson getting sober and then, you know, co-founding this movement that has now become obviously worldwide Mm. and so many different addictions and issues people have. And at the core of that, he was writing Carl Jung to say, hey, thank you. You probably have no idea, but you're partly responsible for the foundation of this thing that's helped millions of people around wow. the world. Mm. And so Carl Jung writes him back and said, yeah, I always wonder what happened to that guy. And I'm so glad that he ended up getting sober because I couldn't help him. Mm. And then goes on to briefly explain that he always had this sense that when people drink alcohol, what they're looking for is, is an experience of God. And it's a shortcut, but it's also a you know, a facsimile of of the real experience. And so in order for someone to who is addicted to alcohol to recreate that spiritual experience and fulfill that yearning, they have to go seek an experience of God. Yes. That's real. Right. So it's, it is it's really right? interesting, so especially is with alcohol the word. A demonic you know? spirit like masquerading as God to seduce us into this kind of because des- we have this desire, <laughs> right. we have this desire, right? This innate human desire for right. a kind of a union with the divine oneness. You know, in a way, maybe that's what happens to us after we die. Like, I hope so. <laughs> you know, but I think, yeah, we are absolutely looking for that in alcohol and other substances. You know, Ram Das talked about LSD in that way and how he would go visit God on his trips on LSD and then just be so devastated that he had to come back you know, that it ended, it ended. And so that led him on his spiritual quest of like, I want to experience that union, but I don't want to have to, to, to end in such a kind of abrupt and painful way. So yeah, I think that with most of our drug experiences, particularly psychedelics in a way, and I guess it's interesting, like alcohol isn't classed as psychedelic, but you can definitely hallucinate on alcohol. And oh, like, absolutely. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can tell by the the phone calls you've made and the texts exactly. you, you've made you the next out, day. You were <laughs> yeah. out of there. You were Wait, out of it. Who said this? That was you, man. Well, that's you the know? thing, right? We call it getting out of it. And yeah. I think that there's the terminology around alcohol use is really interesting. When you start to look at it, it's kind of like we want to get out of this earthly three-dimensional kind of experience into something that feels more magical and free and there where there are no rules and there are no labels being put on us left, right and center. And we can just kind of like express ourselves freely. And so, yeah, I do think that within our alcohol, in fact, Russell Brand wrote about this in his book, Recovery Too, that, you know, the, the, the yearning to drink is a spiritual yearning. And so we have to use the language of spirituality and the language of spirit in order to kind of address that yearning. That's funny, the the languaging around that. I actually never thought of that. Like I got so wasted. I was exactly. hammered. Oh man, I was destroyed. I was floored. You know, they're, they're never, they never have a positive connotation. <laughs> I was so uplifted. <laughs> no, I felt so all... angelic. You know, it's always like I'm trashed. Right? Yeah. yeah. So interesting. Shit that based. Is. Yeah, shit based. Yeah, that's maybe the best one. <laughs> that's maybe I'm actually going to keep that one. That one's actually really <laughs> apropos. What, what are some of the... If you if you know, like, the, what are some of the physical effects? Like, what what would be a reason? Even if someone's like, I don't know, spiritually, I feel amazing. I have great friends. I'm happy, mm. and maybe I sense that alcohol makes me feel like shit, and I have a hangover. Mm. What are some of the physical, you know, the quantifiable physical negative effects of drinking? Well, it's interesting. I can share some, but I don't think they'll necessarily make a drink difference to anyone's drinking because we kind of 
we all sort of know that alcohol is bad for us. We know it's a toxin. It's actually, I don't know, it's not that often reported. It's the third leading cause of preventable deaths in the US. What? Right? It contributes, major contributor to cancer, heart disease, Alzheimer's. Obviously, there's the hundreds of thousands of people who are killed in drink driving accidents every year. It's a really, you know, it's it definitely, it wreaks havoc on our kind of like physical well-being. But it's interesting, there's, there's another kind of part of our biology slash psychology that's all about, it's called now appeal. And that's the, our wiring, which will reach for whatever it is that's going to make us feel better fastest. Mm-hmm. We want it now, right? I'm familiar. <laughs> yeah. I <laughs> think familiar my current, with now my current appeal. is ice cream or something. <laughs> Social like media. That, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's a pretty, that's Instagram. got, it's got Insta, Insta now appeal, right. basically. Yes. Right. <laughs> but it literally is because every like gives us a dopamine hit. That's what we're going for. We want dopamine and we want it now. So talking to someone about like, hey, in 30 years time, you, this might contribute to cancer or like this might, this might kind of like bring these health risks further down the line. It doesn't really, it can't really stand up against the now appeal of a shot of tequila when you're feeling like shit. Or even if it's a, a glass of wine on a Friday night when you just want to press stop tequila. on the week. No, <laughs> ugh, tequila. No, I, luckily I never loved, I could no, never stop on tequila. I, I didn't really like tequila myself, but I'm just, I'm remembering the instantaneous, instantaneous. relief. Like you walk in a place, you have social anxiety, a couple shots of whatever that's strong. And it's and gone. Warm. Yeah. That warm burn, you know, it's like, ah. The now appeal. Yeah. So talking, and I think it's, it's very quick. telling that the fact we do know alcohol is bad for us. We kind of, you know, those reports will come out. I think, I think the most recent report that came out last year was even saying, you know, one glass of wine a day can severely increase a woman's risk of breast cancer. These really? are not, these, these, they don't really land. Damn. And I think that says so much about how much people are actually hurting, whether it's acute pain or whether it's just, you know, social anxiety or you know, feeling the discomfort of being a working mom and knowing you've only got an hour to yourself this week and you just want to be, feel like yourself as quickly as possible and forget about everything else. The discomfort of that is so powerful and potent that people are willing to override or ignore or overlook all of what we know are the negative consequences of alcohol, whether we know we might be addicted, whether we know it might cause us further health problems down the line, or whether we know we're going to wake up hungover tomorrow. (laughs) We're willing to ignore all of that because we feel so shit right now. We just want whatever's going to work quickest. You Which I think just, is where we really need to look. I'm thinking of, of <laughs> a few nights ago, um, I was at this retreat up in Mount Shasta with one of our former guests, John Wineland. And on the final night before he left, they served pizza. And you know, I don't do so well with gluten and, and dairy for that matter. <laughs> and they had some gluten-free pizza, but it was, it was like a longer line. I thought, ah, you know what? Screw it. And I just, I'm like, I'll just have one piece of pizza. It's not going to hurt. I sat there and had like eight, uh, literally eight or nine pieces of gluten pizza. <laughs> and it was like, it was like an opiate. I mean, I just wow. I could not stop. But in that moment, it felt so good that I don't care how many podcast guests I've had on that tell me that leaky gut and <laughs> inflammation and like all that. I was like, that just became noise yeah. in the face, literally like having pizza in my face was just, there weren't other options available is what I'm right. saying that were readily available. That yeah. sounded, and I was like, ah, the gluten-free pizza is probably going to hurt my stomach just as much because it's made with some weird grains and right. stuff. So um, yeah, I just went for it. But you're so right. I don't think that the motivation of saying, oh, there's long-term effects or one in two women, you know, da-da-da, breast cancer. Like none of that really matters in the moment. In the moment. When you're at happy hour with all your coworkers and mm-hmm. everyone's like, what? You're not going to have a drink? What's wrong mm-hmm. with you, dude? Lo- loosen exactly. up. 
why are you so uptight? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, you're right. And then there you go. And exactly. you're able to edge out all of the data that you might have accumulated mm-hmm. um, to the contrary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you just, you know, you just brought up something that's such a huge subject as well. For so many people, it's a barrier, especially when you don't have that kind of rock bottom problem. The peer pressure to drink is just insane. And people say to me, you know, this is a much, this is such an important conversation for women because of the risks of breast cancer, because of the whole kind of mummy. What were the stats again? Did I get? I think it's I I think it's like one glass of wine reduces a woman's uh, increases a woman's risk of breast cancer by like fifty percent. Ah, okay. I don't know if that's. I'm not exactly sure if that's exactly yeah. right. You so can the, maybe look it up, the, but it definitely the detail of the numbers. But there's yeah, definitely an indication. Exactly. That, oh, that's so you know, people ask me this, and you know. Um, it, alcohol is the number one um, date rape drug, like 89% of people who've been sexually assaulted were incapacitated by alcohol. When half the time we're worried about what might get put in our drink without thinking about the fact that once once you're drunk, you're so much more susceptible and vulnerable to being attacked or abused. So there's those issues and people say, oh, it's a, a really important conversation for women. And I'm like, and for men, because particularly in this culture, there's such a kind of bro culture of like sports and drinks. And that's kind of like how I see a lot of men bonding. And I just know from watching other kind of, you know, hetero guys for having a really hard time with the peer pressure that can come of like being the dude who doesn't want to drink, who's yeah. who's seen as kind of like weak or not so macho or like not one of the guys or whatever it is. I think it's that could be a huge honor. challenge. Exactly. Yeah. I'm thinking of like, not that I went to college, but I've seen it in the movies. Um, yes. Frat culture and <laughs> exactly. all that. Like there's, there's so many like um, adolescent rituals with men that mm-hmm. are boys that involve mm. drinking. Exactly. And it's it's almost drinking... like the rite of passage. We exactly. see kind of like in tribal cultures, like a boy reaches the age of 14 and he has to go fight a lion or like, you know, jump off a cliff to prove his manhood. Here it's like, here, drink 10 shots. Right. Do a beer bong. <laughs> exactly. Until you puke. Exactly. Yeah, you did it, bro. <laughs> so... Yeah, that's one thing I, I would like to talk about too. What what are some alternatives then to, I mean, other than obviously just going to events or socializing with people that are also just like, eh, we don't need alcohol. Yeah. Let's find another way to have fun. Yeah. But I'm thinking of a few things. Um, social events, um, if you want to dance. I mentioned something to my girlfriend earlier. I was like, oh, Ruby's coming over. She's doing this whole sober curious thing. And my girlfriend's not a heavy drinker by any means. Um, that would be difficult, I think. Yeah. We wouldn't be a great match. But, you know, she likes to have a drink here and there. And she's like, oh, God, when I, I mean, how can you not drink when you go out dancing? You know, and I was like, that's a really that good point. That was one of my big sober curious the, questions. The only time in my life I've ever <laughs> danced was maybe two or three times. I was hammered and I was really? able to be free and just, I mean, it, one was at a James Brown concert and I was also on mushrooms. Okay. If you're on mushrooms and alcohol and James Brown is performing in That's front of you, it's dance. very, di- yeah, it's very difficult to not dance. Action, yeah. You have to be a corpse or a zombie <laughs> to not dance. But um, but she brought that up and I was like, oh, that's true. And then I'm mm. thinking about something you covered in your book is like dating and sex, mm. the social lubricant, mm-hmm. no pun intended. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I remember when I first quit drinking, my hand, I mean, just to ask a girl out without being drunk, let alone go on a date or try to make the first move or... God forbid if it ever got to the point of actual physical intimacy. I mean, it was terrifying mm-hmm. because I'd never, ever, I mean, I mean, never once had sex sober in my mm-hmm. life before age 26. Which is very much the case for a lot of people, I will imagine, you know? Yeah. So yeah, these are all very challenging situations. I talk a lot about sober firsts and like there's these are not going to, they don't get easier. <laughs> They're always going to be extremely challenging. And the only way out 
is through. <laughs> right. You have to confront them. And I'm sure you've experienced this. The more you do these things, the more you put yourself in that scary situation and you prove to yourself or you show to yourself, I didn't take a drink. Nobody died. In fact, I actually feel pretty good about myself coming out of this without a hangover and knowing that I can do this without a drink. It's actually a really, it's really confidence building. Um, and they do get easier with time, but there are always going to be situations. And I, I'm just so thankful that there are now really only in the past like eight, nine, six, eight months or so, tons of alcohol-free options that just seem to be kind of blossoming everywhere. There's a couple of alcohol-free bars in New York now that literally opened in the past couple of months. Are you serious? Yeah. And they pay the bills? I, I, yeah. <laughs> so far. Well, there's one that's a so pop-up, so a good. monthly pop-up called Listen Bar that takes over a regular bar uh, and does an alcohol-free night once oh, a cool. month. And then there's a brick and mortar bar called Getaway in Greenpoint in Brooklyn that's like pure, completely zero proof. They don't even serve alcohol-free beer because it has 0.5% right. or kombucha. Right. Um, do, do any of these places, I'm curious, um, if they don't, do you see this as being a viable alternative? Um, like a kava bar or something yeah. that uses different herbs and plants that are relaxing and calming and give you that, you know, not the same kind of social lubricant, yeah. but around like a ritual of like, hey, we're all drinking this special pot of tea or this or that and... There's something to at least consume that mm -hmm. might have some. Well, yeah, there are options you know, slightly like mind altering, um, subs, you know, like mind altering effect to a lesser degree or one that doesn't have consequences. Yes, there are um, the Assemblage, which is a members bar club in New York. They have something called an it's an alcohol free members club, um, and they have an Elixir bar, which has lots of these kinds of concoctions that you're talking about. There is cool. a Carver bar in East Village. I've never checked it out but have meant to. I've had kava myself and it has a pleasing mouth-numbing effect yeah. for when you're looking for something that makes you feel a bit more I actually have like an something's episode, happening. <laughs> I have an episode coming out. All of, It's like an hour and a half interview all about kava. It's wow. fascinating. Yeah, you, it just as a complete aside here, yeah. just for, you know, this is like the conversation that would happen off mic, but it's really interesting. Um, those classifications of uh, pharmaceuticals called benzodiazepines. I oh, yeah. That's how you say it, like Valium mm, and Xanax mm, mm. that are um, nervous system, affect your nervous system and calm you down. Kava hits the same receptors in your brain as wow. benzos. And so you can actually use, if you have high quality and yeah. like the right kind of kava and the right doses, you can use it to wean off of benzos. Very interesting. I'm not, I'm not giving a medical claim that suggests people do so, but yeah. I learned so much in that conversation. Now I'm like, I got this kava from this company called Noble Roots, which is the guy that mm. I interviewed. Not, I love that stuff. Mm. And I got someone I went to Hawaii. It's, it's oh, kind really? of originates from Hawaii, yeah, right? Yeah, they do it's grow like, it there. Yeah. yeah. And Fiji, a couple other places. Right. So, so yeah, there are, yeah. you know, that's an alternative. There's a drink called Kin Euphorics that has 5-HTP in it, oh. which is, um, it's plant derived and it's a serotonin boosting substance. And people actually, people who are heavily into MDMA will take it like the next day to, yeah. to kind of like mitigate the come down effects. I but. just learned that. <laughs> so I was actually, I was looking into, I mean, I don't know that I'm going to go there, but I was looking into the efficacy and the popularity now and even the medically legal acceptance of using MDA as it's it was originally intended as a therapeutic yes. agent, right? Yes. Couples therapy, things like that. Oh, PTSD. Yeah, there yeah, are PTSD. John Hopkins trials are being done for that. Yeah. So that's a, that's exciting. And it's 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 funny because, you know, as we talk about alcohol, I, I don't really see a lot of benefit to alcohol. <laughs> but even someone that doesn't typically recreationally do drugs, I am a huge believer in the benefit and the sort of medical use of drugs, whether that be cannabis, MDMA, psilocybin, ayahuasca. I mean, these things well, have a place. Absolutely. It's just, I think a lot of it has to do with intention. 
set and setting? Like, why are you doing it to escape from yourself? Or are you doing it to go deeper into yourself? Mm-hmm. And when I finally, after like years of debating, went and did ayahuasca, I knew in my heart that I was doing it to really learn more about myself. It wasn't to try and numb some pain. Uh, my life's the fucking opposite. awesome. Like yeah. I'm celebrating how beautiful my life is 99.9% of the time. Mm. So it was about going inward. But what are some you know, alternatives that you see where people might be able to have altered states of consciousness in a public setting or in a ceremonial way that don't have those negative consequences. Well, it's interesting just to note that most of the substances you mentioned, LSD, psilocybin, MDMA, ayahuasca, these are what are known as evocative therapies. Whereas alcohol, cannabis to an extent, um, antidepressants, anti-anxiety, these are suppressive therapies. So what we rely on very much in Western Western medicine and, and in Western society in general, alcohol being a case in point is where there is pain, suppress it, make it go away as quickly as possible. Right. Whereas what you're describing are... You know, I haven't take done ayahuasca myself, but what I understand is that it's typically a dark night of the soul kind of experience, and you will you're likely to be seeing the root of your pain and to experience that pain again. And if you're with someone who knows what they're doing, they're going to guide you deeper into that. Same with an LSG, and same with you know the medical uses of of things like MDMA, LSD, psilocybin. If a painful experience comes up on those trips. The, the right thing to do is, okay, let's go deeper into this and let's look at it in the face and let's actually confront that demon once and for all. And that is how you have an emotional catharsis and actually kind of can move on from that traumatic like experience. Heal, the difference between a healing experience and an avoidant experience. Exactly. Right? You can have a catharsis where it's actually released rather than getting squished further down into your cells right. to perhaps become cancerous at some point later in life, you know? Which again, not making any medical claims here, but these are just kind of theories that I have um, been playing with myself. But um, so yeah, thinking about evocative therapies, but that doesn't necessarily have to involve taking a substance. Like talk therapy is an evocative therapy if you have a good therapist right. who's going to actually get you to speak about what happened. And that can be done in a in a group setting with friends, like an intentional kind of sharing circle. It's what happens at AA. Yeah, The story sharing is people evoking the memory and the experiences again to kind of have a release of those experiences. I think in in many ways that that practice, um, especially when it's verbalized, is it's almost like this, um, it has religious connotations to me. It's like giving testimony. Yeah, It's like, hey, in a a really like stereotypical religious, it'd be like, oh, this is the way the devil got me. And then you're kind of going through that and cleansing yourself of that by sharing it and and being vulnerable and open about your experience and that authenticity and humility that yeah. comes with really being courageous enough to look at yourself and then sharing that with other people. And then having other people see it and accept you yeah. despite that flaw or that trauma or that shameful thing that happened. And You're having accepted. them go, yeah, that happened to me or right. I felt that way. I guess so it's healing. the foundation of group therapy sort mm-hmm. of comes out of that model, right? Of one person saying, hey, this is my truth testifying in front of a group of their peers and having that unconditional love and acceptance and compassion reflected back to them. Exactly. And that shared experience where you're like, yeah, Whereas if you think think about how it happens in Catholicism, for example, behind closed doors in a hidden room, you (laughs) can't even look at the priest. It's like, but it's the same thing of this confession, this idea of confessing your sin is actually what helps it to, to, to be released, you know, rather than you having to hold on to that, that sin or that resentment or that, shame or whatever it is. But anyway, in terms of other kind of experiences like breath work is an amazing practice for having that kind of like almost psychedelic 
emotional release, you know? Oh, yeah. Are you familiar? Have you have interviewed Deborah Hannekamp, right? Mama yeah, Medicine? sure. So she performs medicine readings where she kind of channels the spirit of the ayahuasca plant. Plant? Plant. I'm talking like an American. <laughs> <laughs> of the ayahuasca plant. Um, in a reading in like, and she'll sing the Icaros, the medicine songs. So she's not using the substance, but she's kind of like giving her her clients an experience of a kind of that same sort of spiritual release. So there are definitely tools out there, practices out there that we ha- are getting more and more access to where we can we can look at some of the deeper causes behind our addictions, whether they're severe addictions, whether they're just kind of like things that are getting in the way of us living our best life. You know? I really, you know, I really love the idea of this, this popularity. I mean, for lack of a better term, a trend of having people say, hey, we want to come together and socialize and have fun and hear music and dance and, uh, you know, the whole mating rituals that go on in nightlife and things like that. Mm-hmm. And we want to do that without the inclusion of alcohol. Mm. I think that's a really, um, it's a really healthy step for people. And again, I'm not anti-alcohol. Like, listen, to be honest, if I could have a shot here, there, have a couple beers here and there without my life completely crumbling, I probably would. You know, I'm like, I'm real. I'm honest about this. But I think there are a lot of people, as you say, that want to explore community that doesn't include that Mm -hmm. because they're just health conscious or they want a deeper mm, connection. And exactly. Let's face it, when two people are buzzed or drunk, you think you're really connecting. And then the next day, you're like, who was that jerk? Exactly. You know, what did we like, even talk about? Yeah. It's it's a <laughs> it's a diluted, um, for lack of, you know, that's a very literal way to say, it, but it's a diluted experience, right? Whereas working with plant medicines or even just being stone cold sober, I mean, there's a realness to it that is palpable. Mm-hmm. And this is an experience Absolutely. I've had for a long time. I have yeah. so many situations where still even today, I have to work through the discomfort of like, oh my God, there's so many people here. I don't know. I mean, I have that shit when I walk in a room. I'm like, all right, where's the one person? Do I know anyone yeah. here? Like, I'm going to just zero in on them, you know, because <laughs> I feel scared. And yeah. that's a normal human response, thank you. I think. Just, can I just say thank you for sharing that? Because I'm always that person at an event and I'm like, everyone else is so chill. Everyone else knows <laughs> everyone. And I'm just going to sit here and like, play with this carrot stick until like, right, right. until pretend, the thing, until the thing starts. Here's I can the just... ultimate is having your phone in airplane. Cause I don't want EMFs in my head and like pretending like you're talking on the phone or like yeah. pretending like you're texting. You're just like avoiding people with Instagram. Yeah. I do have one hack I'd like to share though. Mm. I discovered this years ago in going out in public settings. Mm. When I worked in the fashion industry, I would kind of have to like show my face at events to kind of stay engaged in that career and people and all that. So I go to these fashion events and they're super awkward. Super awkward. Yeah. It's just because everyone's like, you know, it's all about what you're wearing and all this stuff. Not always, but there is a, 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 Mm. you know, part of it is like that. So what I would do is I would show up really early and I would find a good place to sit kind of before the crowd came in and I would get to know the bartender's name and the person serving hors d'oeuvres. And I would kind of like, just kind of take ownership of the space. And then as people would start to filter in and the room would fill up, I felt very secure in my surroundings and I had like a good place to sit. And I'm like, oh, hey, Joe, yeah, another ginger ale, you know? And it's like, you kind of feel at home there. Mm. And then it's as if the crowd is kind of coming into your space rather than you showing up late and it's all busy and you're trying to meander your way through the crowd and find that one person you know, and then you have to interrupt them in a conversation. And so I would just give a tip like showing up early and then you can also kind of like 
you know, contribute to the event with your presence. And if it's a networking kind of thing, you can get that done and then get the hell out of there and not have to stay. I think for the, leave, six the leaving hours. early is another great <laughs> yeah, tip. Totally. Like, how many, when I think totally. about how many times I was like, oh, I suppose I'll have another drink, thinking I should stay a bit longer because it would be rude to leave now. So I guess right. I'll have another drink to make it bearable. When actually now I'm just like, <clears throat> if I'm over it, I'm, I le- I'm leaving. Like, <laughs> you don't have to, I don't have to stay somewhere. I'm not having a good time. You know, I can go do what I need to get done and have like zero shame about then just going straight home again. It's absolutely As, as we start to wrap it up, because I know you have to get to the airport mm. on, onto your retreat. Um, I, I just for people listening, I mean, we've covered so much great stuff here. And it's, I could actually, I could go on for like another three hours because this topic is so fascinating mm. and personal to mm. me. But what might you recommend to someone who, you know, feels as though they might have a drinking problem? They're not sure they're an alcoholic. I mean, would you say go check out some 12-step meetings and see if that fits? Go to therapy? Where would someone start if they're curious? A. B, if someone's like, oh, I'm a hardcore alcoholic. I know my life's being destroyed. I can't stop drinking. There's no denial. I'm just full-blown you know, what are some different avenues people can take? Are there alternatives that you're aware of to, to doing a 12-step um, thing and going to rehab and kind of taking that traditional route? Like where can people turn if they sense they do have a problem? Well, I think the really, really, really great thing about AA is that it's free. So you literally have nothing to lose by going to check it out if you're questioning. And I'm really glad I went to the couple of meetings that I did because if anything, it helped me to understand it helped me that that it answered that question. Am I an alcoholic for me? No, this is not my story. This is not what I need. Okay, good. I know that now I can go check out other things, you know? So I think if anyone, if you are questioning your drinking, you have nothing to lose by checking out the meeting and seeing if it resonates. But I think my number one thing is really just like, take, like stop drinking. <laughs> and I know that's obviously for some people really challenging. If it's incredibly challenging for you, for you to like, say, I'm going to stop drinking for three months, say then if that's really a huge challenge, go to AA, get the support you, <laughs> you need. You might have a problem, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, for anyone who pre-ordered my book got to do a guide, what is calling a guided 100-day reset. A lot of people do a dry January now or a sober October, taking a month off drinking. And I actually don't really think that a month is long enough if you really want to um, experience, A, the benefits of not drinking and really get a feel for what alcohol it's like to live without alcohol. A month is kind of... It's a bit of a novelty, goes past pretty fast. So three months, 100 days is actually a really good time period. So just take a break and then just really pay attention to how it feels. Um, Really pay attention to when the cravings come and like think about what they're actually attached to and and maybe focus on that rather than the craving, you know? And and yeah, use that period as time to do some self-investigation, maybe check out some therapy or maybe check out Maybe try meditation if you haven't tried meditation or check out some of these kind of alternative ways to to do some self-analysis or increase your self-awareness. And one thing I would say as well, for me, it's been really helpful to focus less or even not at all on what I'm trying to remove and really put all of my attention and focus on the things I do want in my life. You know, I want more yeah. hours in the day. I want more energy. I want great sleep. I want relationships that feel really authentic. And so focus on bringing that, cultivating those things in my life with the awareness that alcohol is one thing that prevents me from having all of those things, you know? That's that's a, a, one thing you mentioned in there. I mean, the authentic relationships, like we, we covered, you mm. think you're best friends with someone. Same thing when you're doing something creative. Like I used to mm. play music for a long time and 
when I was drunk and the people I was playing with were drunk. I mean, we thought we just wrote the best song or had the best gig. And then we'd listen back to the recording and be like, oh my God, this is, we're not even in tune. Like we're not even musicians for Christ's sake. But yeah. And the other thing I don't think people realize with alcohol, and again, I'm not anti-alcohol, but the awareness is important that it like, oh, I, I, yeah, I passed out last night. Right. And you think you slept really well, but alcohol actually really screws up your sleep. Really screws it up. Yeah. No matter how well you think you're sleeping, if you use like my ring here, my aura ring, if you track your sleep, you'll see that you don't get any, whether it's REM or deep. It's I REM. Forget, it's it REM. prevents REM sleep. Yeah. Yeah. Which so is the most restorative part, which just to finish up. Okay. Yeah, let's yeah, think no, about this. Please, Go back yeah. to the spiritual, slightly mystical zone. So REM sleep is the most restorative part of the sleep. If we don't go there, we always wake up. We'll, we won't wake up feeling refreshed. REM sleep is also when we have our most vivid dreams and our body is completely paralyzed, almost like we have left the room. We have these vivid dreams, which is our subconscious trying to work out or kind of make sense of or kind of sort through the experiences we've had or we're going through in our lives at the time. And I just wonder like, where is it we're going to? Where is our spirit going when we're in REM sleep? To these deep, like shamanic, you know, it's almost like it's shamanic trance that happens every night where we go to get some healing from these other realms and then we come back. And alcohol prevents us from from entering that part of the sleep state, which I think is why it's so hard. Even though you pass out drunk, you still wake up feeling like crap the next day, you know? Yeah. And what would you say is the difference between you know, in, in the context of the 12-step model in Alcoholics Anonymous, there's sort of classifications of alcoholics, right? You have like mm. the hardcore alcoholic, and I'm just paraphrasing, making my own term, and that's mm. someone that like wakes up, has a drink, drinks all day, goes into the DTs if they don't have alcohol, like someone who's physically, emotionally, mentally, mm. spiritually addicted to alcohol. Mm. Then you have the periodic that's like, you know, they they don't drink every day, they drink every three weeks, but they get fucking hammered and they have no control over how much they drink. And you have kind of the maintenance drinker. My mm. grandfather was one of those. Mm-hmm. He was an alcoholic and he just, he was, he was never belligerent or crazy. He just, but he always reeked like vodka and he always had a vodka next to him. Kind of like Keith Richards, I think. Right, yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> like you never see Keith Richards wasted, it's but he always, slow, he always has that red yeah. cup next to him. If you, if you watch his <laughs> interviews and like, oh, what's in that red cup, Keith? And I mean, mm. I've heard he, you know, is always just sipping um, alcohol. Uh, and and so you have the maintenance drinker that just has this low level blood concentration of alcohol, but they never get out of hand. And then you have what's called a heavy drinker, which is someone who's not clinically an alcoholic, but they just, they like to get their groove on more than the average person. So mm. if, you know, if you're listening and you're thinking, wow, I kind of fit into one of those categories, how do you think one could determine, you know, if they are clinically an alcoholic or addicted to alcohol or just someone that just enjoys getting their rocks off? Well, this is the thing. And maybe you can help me out with this. Um, I think it was my friend Biet Simkin who told me that uh, alcoholism is a self-diagnosed disease. Is mm. that correct? Yeah. Yeah. That so would I'm be not true. sure then. The only way is to, right. That's a humble is to get really curious, actually do some really honest self-inquiry, be really honest with yourself. I think ultimately, you know if alcohol is a problem for you. Does it matter if you're clinically could be termed an alcoholic or not? I don't know. I'm more concerned with how does my life look like? It doesn't need to have a label on it necessarily for me. It's like, how does my life look like? Is this thing preventing me from living a life that feels like it's mine? <laughs> then, right. okay, it's probably a good idea if I address this and, and remove it, you know? Love it. Yeah. And in this 
conversation as we wrap up. I'm just, I'm just actually feeling so grateful that that's not an issue for me anymore. Yeah, you know, because it was good for, for so you. many years. Yeah. It was something like, God, I actually don't want to be doing this, and I can't stop. And that's a really, yeah, that's a really humiliating way to live. You know, when it's like you know better, and your conscious is indicating to you that that you could have higher aspirations yeah. and you could be living in a way that would not only serve you, but others um, more meaningfully, but you literally don't have the power to stop it. And I think that to me, that's kind of the the dividing line is, yeah. is you know, if I really like buckle down, can I stop what, whatever behavior it is for a long period of time, you know, cause there's like, there's, there's quitting and then there's quitting, right? Or stopping versus quitting. Maybe like stopping is like, oh, I don't do this thing for a week. But quitting is like, I don't care if I ever do it again. And exactly. this is super easy. Yeah. And to be um, having been sort of restored to having, I don't even think it's a willpower thing, but there's some other power that's entered into my life that just makes it a non-issue. And I'm just so grateful to be reminded of that because as the years wear on, 22 plus of them now, it's like, I just kind of, Oh yeah, it's just my normal life. I yeah. go out, people drink. I mean, it's not even a thing that I think about at all. But there was a time when like almost every moment of the day was like, when do I get the next one? When do I get the next one? And how do I hide it? And how do I control it? And all of the energy that goes into that type of life. So, wow. And I think that's great. You sharing that is um, because there are so many people for whom that struggle lasts for years, you know? And I think believe for truly that they're always going to have that struggle, that daily struggle. And for some people, maybe they will, but thank you for sharing that. You know, it maybe took 20, 20 plus years, but here you are and it's like a non-issue. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not something that um, I, you know, for most of those years, until I had a podcast, I never talked publicly ever about yeah. that. It was, I was, I don't know if I was ashamed. It was just, it was very private and it wasn't something I was particularly excited to tell people. Mm. There was a bit of stigma around it, mm-hmm. I think. And mm-hmm. so... I would go out and people say, hey, you want to drink? I'm like, no, I'm good. And they go, what's up? And I go, oh, no, I'm allergic. That's what I used to say. You know, what happens? I break out in handcuffs. Which <laughs> 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 is quite true. <laughs> so in closing, Ruby Warrington, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for coming by the house, the studio here. It's really great to see you and, you know, get kind of an update on your life and your work. I love what you're doing. I've learned a lot from you about something I thought I was pretty well versed in. Who have been three teachers or teachings in your life that you might share with our audience that they could go research and also learn from? Oh, well, there are some books that I quote in Sober Curious on this subject in particular. That by the biology of the of desire, I will definitely recommend again. I think your audience would probably really enjoy it. It's um, it's a scientific book, but it's not at all dry. It's superhuman and very vivid, beautiful storytelling. So, the biology of the of desire by Mark. Um, Lewis. I would say some of the breathwork sessions. So I guess I have to I have to name check David Elliott. I've never met him before, but most of the people that I've experienced breathwork with has studied with David Elliott. Um, his breathwork technique. Some of the people are Aaron Telf, um, Luke Simon, Betsy LaFay. These are all breathwork practitioners, and these I think it's easier and easier to find people who will offer breathwork sessions online as well. If you can't get to a, a class or have a one on one, and breathwork has been something that's just been has given me such fun experiences of really deep emotional catharsis you know when Absolutely. it's well done well it's a really amazing trippy experience because um, I, I I kind of I really enjoy those experiences yeah. <laughs> and the thought that I can get that high without having any kind of like substances or negative side effects I'm like hell yeah bring it yeah, on it's actually really healthy too I mean it's really, really healthy. good for you to become exactly. hyper-oxygenated like that yeah exactly and I would also say I'll say Alexandra Roxo, who I'm going off to leave my retreat with. 
my friendship with her, we're actually, we're in what I call a collaboration ship. It's kind of like deeper than a friendship and we collaborate and make things together. But she's really helped to teach me the value of just kind of being vulnerable and sharing what's up in real time as and when it happens, even just as a friend. And I think the more we can have those kind of just open conversations with each other about what's really going on, the the less we'll hold on to resentments, the less we'll hold on to shame and the more quickly we'll just kind of be able to move on through whatever difficulties are presenting. So thank you, Alexandra, for, for being a friend I can do that with. <laughs> Beautiful. Thanks for sharing those. And where can people find your website, social media, et cetera? So I recently, to coincide with this book coming out and started my own Instagram. So it's just at Ruby Warrington, which is kind of where I share most of my work the first. And my website is the hyphen numinous, where it's it's more focused on astrology these days as I've kind of like separated the, the different strands of what I do out into different channels. But the Ruby Warrington Instagram is where to get most of this stuff. Cool. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming back. Thanks on. again for having me, Luke. Yeah, safe it's great sober to see travels you. to you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Cheers. Okay. I don't know about you guys, but the episode was really fun. And I love you so much. No, I really, I love you, dude. Come here. Give me a hug. I'm trying to remember what it was like to be hammered. That's been quite a while. Had some good times back in the day. As I sit here and record, it's actually 4th of July today as I'm prepping this episode. I'm about to head out to a barbecue where I'll be eating copious amounts of amazing grass-fed meat from uh, Belcampo at my friend James's house. Jumping in the pool, jumping in the hot tub, probably throwing my dog in the damn pool. We're going to get wild, but one thing I won't be wilding out with is uh, alcohol. Just so interesting. It's just become a, such a natural part of my life, but there are plenty of natural highs like breath work, kundalini yoga, uh, and other things like next week's topic, kava, I might just take some kava today. I took a little kratom, or as people that are American call it, kratom. Uh, There's plenty of other things that are relatively safe. I don't know if kratom is totally safe, but uh, if you're careful, it is. Uh, But there's plenty of things that the, the planet produces, that nature or God produces, that don't need much human intervention other than just grinding them up and eating them. And, um... I'm all for alternatives, and I also am all for not judging people who drink. If that's your medicine, that's your medicine, man. It's, it can be amazing. I used to love me a good um, a good uh, draft. What do they call that? Um, like Guinness Newcastle Lager? Are they a lager? I don't remember what they're called. It's been so long. That's how out of touch I am. But, um, you know, nothing like a stiff drink every once in a while. But it's also great to um, discover other alternatives. Hey, check it out. You know, you can watch most of these interviews live if you follow me on Instagram. My Instagram is at Luke Story. I also post tons of stories and what I think is pretty valuable and at times entertaining content on there. And it's a great way for me to uh, interact with people. So follow me on Insta. If you had been following me on Insta, you could have been watching this interview live with Ruby. Speaking of live, I've got a few events coming up. I'll be doing the Rama Fest in Majorca, Spain, July 19th through 21st following night on July 22nd, I will be presenting the High Love Experience Workshop also at Rama in Majorca. Super stoked about that. And then I'll be doing the Health Optimization Summit in London, September 14th and 15th. You can go to lukestory.com forward slash events. Makes sense, right? Lukestory-events. Let's thank our sponsors for which this show, nor any episode of the Lifestylist Podcast would be possible for Sigmatic. The code there is the Lifestylist for 15% off. 
That's foursigmatic.com forward slash the lifestylist. My friends over at Blue Block, some great blue blocking eyewear. And you know what they do, guys, that's really dope is you can send them your prescription glasses and or your prescription rather, and they will make you prescription blue blocking glasses. Super dope. Go to blueblocks.com. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X. Use the code lifestylist to save 15% off. And then we've got our buddies over at Beekeepers Naturals. You can go to beekeepersnaturals.com, enter the code lifestylist and save 15% off. Wow, maybe I, I have been drinking. I think all this talk of alcohol is giving me flashbacks. <laughs> no, seriously though, um, it's easy to support our sponsors if you just go to lukestory.com forward slash store. That's lukestory.com forward slash store. Because any of our advertisers that run promos on the show uh, are available there. And uh, if they're on my store, that means I use them. I like them. I believe in them. They're super awesome. I just did a photo shoot yesterday and I actually wore my blue blocks. Pretty dope. Because some blue blocking glasses look really stupid, um, but they're just, you know, like you use them medicinally to block blue light at night. But blue blocks actually have some cool frames, kind of the old um, Ray-Ban Wayfarer style. Pretty rad. So find them over at my web store. And then I think that's it, you guys. Thank you so much for joining me. Listen, uh, if you don't want to support the sponsors, you don't like the best products in the world, or you just don't have the cash on hand, no problem. You know what you can do to support the show? Text, email, or share on social this episode with a couple of your friends right now. Preferably, if you have like a million followers on Instagram, then put it on your main feed. I'm just kidding. But seriously, uh, share the episode with a friend and I will be back at you next week with Kava Culture, Nature's Xanax and your nervous system solution with Cameron George. Until then, be well. This episode of the Lifestylist Podcast was produced by podcastmasters.net.